Well, before turning to writing full-time, Anna Funder worked as a counsel in international and human rights law for the Australian government, focusing on human rights, constitutional law and treaty negotiation. However, sometime in the early 90s, she took off to Berlin to become what she describes as a kind of agony aunt at a Berlin television station. It was from there that she came to write Stasiland, eventually published in 2002 and going on to be shortlisted for many awards in Australia and Britain, including winning the world's biggest prize for biography, the Samuel Johnson Prize. Held as a masterpiece in a classic, Stasiland's been published in 25 countries and translated into 16 languages. In 2011, Anna published the novel All That I Am, an exhilarating exploration of bravery and betrayal during the Second World War, of the risks and sacrifices some people make for their beliefs, and of heroism hidden in the most, in the most unexpected places. All That I Am went on to win many awards, including the Miles Franklin, the Barbara Jeffress, and the ABIA Best Literary Fiction Award. Today, she continues her work and commitment to human rights as an ambassador for the International Cities of Refuge Network, which offers safe havens around the world to writers persecuted in their own countries. She is a University of Technology Sydney luminary and Chancellor's postdoctoral fellow. She was named in 2011 in the top 100 people of influence by the Sydney Morning Herald and appointed to the Literature Board of the Australia Council of the Arts. After several years in Brooklyn, New York, Anna now lives in Sydney. Please put your hands together for Anna Funda. Uh -huh. Welcome, Anna. I think, I think it's important to stay from the start, as I was talking to Angela a moment ago, that this book is, is not a takedown of George Orwell. Um, in fact, you have long been at an admirer of his. I wonder if we could start, please, with your relationship to both the man and his writing. Sure. First, um, hello, Melanie. It's very nice to be here. I was last here four years ago and I had such a good time that I just jumped at the chance to come back. So thank you, Stephen, and thank you, everybody. Um, yes, this book, Wifedom, started for me really... It took six years to write, so it started six, much more than six years ago, because it was a year in the edit. In 2017, I found myself at a moment which I'm describing to myself as um, peak wifedom, or alternatively, uh, I was under a mother load of wifedom. <laughs> I had um, two teenagers and a preteen, and it was just that time of year as people uh, as you have to get your kids back to school. So there's like a thousand emails and orthodontic appointments and, you know, uniforms and books to get. It was that time of the year, really hot. And I had to... Um, I had a depressed French exchange student in tow, uh, probably depressed because my children were ignoring him. I, f I found myself having this kind of... Um, really describe it as a sort of... A privileged perimenopausal meltdown in the local shopping centre because I just thought, what happened to my life? Uh, and so I, it was a really soulless place. You wouldn't know anything about that here in Mullaney, but uh, like monstrous shopping centre where, you know, it's like a people trap and you can't get out. So the only antidote was really to go to a second-hand bookshop. So I went, I live in Glebe in Sydney and I, I went around the corner to Sappho and I found there just, my life is full of serendipitous discoveries in libraries and bookshops. 
because uh, I spend so much time there. But it was a first edition set of Orwell's collected journalism and letters um, from 1968. And I opened it up and it had been owned by Peter Corris, a writer who'd recently died and he also lived in my neighbourhood. So it was just this precious object. And I, so I dumped the groceries at home and dragged the depressed French exchange student <laughs> to a beach on the harbour and thought, well, he can swim and I can somehow read Orwell, who is so good on how power works and who it works on from an underdog's position. And I think subliminally I thought maybe I'll, be, I'll find some sort of rescue or help here. You know, a more sensible person would have started yoga or therapy <laughs> and they would have been cured much more quickly. Uh, but anyway, that's what happened to me, and this is the result. Yeah. And what a great result it is. But uh, what, what is it about his prose in particular that, that kind of in, excites you? Do you know, I just had another thought, which is um, I'm not often introduced with my illustrious history as an agony aunt. But I'm really happy about that. That was a very happy period of my life where I had a one-day-a-week job at Deutsche Welle Television in the 90s. And they, I mean, I could live on the smell of an oily rag, but they paid me what seemed like a fortune to answer those letters from people. Uh, so maybe I was looking to Orwell to be somehow my agony aunt, you know, and in his kind of jostling with reality and his attempts to create his writing self. That was what I was really interested in. If I felt like I was having this meltdown, this kind of inner psychic meltdown by being under this mother load of wifedom, which wasn't equally shared with my very nice husband, but he wasn't doing all of... He was off doing something else. Um, somehow Orwell could rescue me. What I... Like in Orwell, I think, is many things, but it's often the tone. He has this tone that is funny and self-deprecating uh, and it just a this little sort of gimlet eye on power from this underdog point of view, which is really interesting to me. I have to say, having lived with Orwell now for six years, I think about it in slightly more complicated terms, but there's a real joy in reading in reading his work. What happened was after I'd, I wasn't quite cured after reading um, the collected essays in journalism, so I went and reread some of the novels, most particularly Animal Farm in 1984, and then I read six biographies of Orwell. They're the main biographies of him. They're published... Not, not just one biography of him. I know, I know. I take, <coughs> taking it too far is what my kids say. You take it too far, Mum. I took it too far. Uh, so there are six and they're all wonderful in their own way. And then I took it even too further, too much further. And uh, when I'd finished with those, I came across these letters which were published in a small book by Peter Davison, the great Orwell scholar, after he'd finished his collected works. Six letters from Eileen O'Shaughnessy, Orwell's first wife. She married Orwell in June 1936. They were married till 1945. Um, six letters from her to her best friend from the time when they were students at Oxford were discovered in 2005, so after all of these biographies were written. 
And the first of those reads, this was really the something I think that I didn't know I was looking for, that I was kind of looking for. The first of them reads, she, it's six months after the wedding and she and Orwell have been living in a tiny cottage in a village outside of London called Wallington. The cottage is 300 years old. It has a tin roof, no electricity, one tap and an outdoor privy that overflowed. So they're living in these very primitive conditions, essentially, you know, both suffering for his art, really. And six months later, it, they're visiting his parents for the first time, staying with the Orwells, well, the Blairs, his was his real name, in Southwold. And she has the time to pick up a pen and write to Nora, and Eileen writes, Dear Nora, I'm sorry it's taken me so long to write to you, but we have quarrelled so continuously and really bitterly since the wedding that I thought I'd just write one letter to everyone once the murder or separation was accomplished. <laughs> and I just thought, who are you? You are hilarious and so clever. And what are you fighting about in these early months of wifedom? How hard is it getting used to this role? Why do you want to kill him, even in jest? You know, these are all interesting questions. So I scuttled back to the biographies and opened them up and looked at um, the part when they're the newlyweds and read things like, the months after the wedding were the happiest in Orwell's life. <laughs> he had never been happier before or since. Conditions were idyllic for him. And I just thought, between this hilarious Oxford-educated woman, she'd been at Oxford studying under Tolkien, uh, this hilarious woman who wants to kill him, who is clearly, the arguments are probably, my hunch was, about the making of the conditions for this idol for him to enjoy, uh, there might be room for a book. And that's what I did. That was, that was the black hole I went into. So, I mean, <clears throat> before we go into Eileen's story, because I, I, I want to go there, I, I wonder if we might take a diversion into the practicalities of the book you've got here, because your approach to it is, is really quite unusual. I've detected at least four different types of, um, of writing in the work. It's a, a biography, it's a history, it's a fiction, but also in parts a kind of very powerful polemic uh, an attempt to both correct the record and to explain why such a thing might be necessary. And, and I wondered how you came across that complex structure. Um, well, I think each of my books I've looked at what it is that I'm writing about and whatever that uh, particular truth or person or story is, or all of those things, what sort of form would work best to tell that story. So each book is a kind of uh, intervention into history or reality with a story that hasn't been told before. So with Stasiland, for instance, I there are four stories in that book that are stories of people, apparently ordinary people, who found in themselves this extraordinary moral courage to resist the East German Stasi regime at enormous cost to them. Essentially, 
living in the GDR, some of you will know from having read it or read about it, uh, you were often approached to betray your family and friends. And if you did that, you were yourself then morally warped out of shape. And if you didn't do it, you might be, and your family might be very severely punished. So people who resisted were extraordinary. I wanted to write a novel at that time as my first book, which would have been a sensible thing to do. And I tried to. I started one with Miriam's story. That's one of the kind of anchor stories in that book. And the the thing that I wrote was just execrable. It was really awful. And I it was awful in its own right. But it was also, there was something wrong with it that was bigger than its own innate awfulness. And that was, uh, it, it, it had a moral problem as well as an aesthetic problem. And that moral, and those things were connected. And it was, eventually I realised that it wasn't the right thing to do to take someone else's story that was not being told when Miriam... She, this is a woman who tried to climb the wall in 1968 when she was 16 and then lived a life of basically harassment and subjugation by the Stasi and wasn't morally undone by it. She really retained a sense of herself despite everything. She was walking around, she lived in Leipzig, walking around Leipzig at that time and in the, you know, the hand that came over her shoulder in the delicatessen to get the number to buy his sausage could have been her interrogator. You know, so it just wasn't right to be using someone else's material life as material for my own voice in a novel. All that I am, everybody's dead, but the story is true. No one knows how those brave anti-Nazi activists died in London. It doesn't look good. The inquest was a whitewash. So that's a novel. I felt totally entitled to bring dead people back to life unlikely as that sounds, because I'm not doing a violence to them and that's a novel with footnotes. So the form of both of those is unusual, but it just took me a while to find a way of expressing uh, those real stories in the most powerful and uh, kind of aesthetically appropriate way. This um, was different. I could have taken Eileen's letters. I was very lucky... Um, to get permission to use them. And they are stunning, funny, moving, prescient, uh, extraordinary things. And again, I was cherry about using her, her work to create a fictional version of her. But more than that, I thought, uh, if, I, if I write a novel, the great advantage would be have been that I would have been sitting here with you a couple of years ago. It would have been much, much easier. But what came to fascinate me was this way in which she has been erased or disappeared uh, from the historical record. And that starts with Orwell writing her out of his life and what they did together, which is something we, we can perhaps get to. And the biographers, in this way that conditions were idyllic, one of the most powerful ways the work and lives of women are written out of history, all of the unpaid and unsung 
work of life and love that we do disproportionately compared to the men that we love and live with. One of the ways that's made invisible is this passive voice. Conditions were idyllic, the cake was baked, the manuscript was being typed, uh, you know, the school enrolment was done, the exchange student was looked after, um, whatever it might be. So I was fascinated by these kind of sly ways in which women were literally written out of these biographical stories, not just Eileen, but also other women in Orwell's family and in his life. And I wanted to examine those. So I wanted to say, if we look at, if I take these biographies as, and I unpick them, uh, reverse engineer them, look very closely, go into the footnotes, go into the sources that those biographers used, find who they left out because they said something about Orwell that didn't fit into the picture of the decent man that they wanted to uh, present. And I could get these, and these things are fascinating and interesting, and kind of pick up all of these scraps of information that were enormously revealing about Orwell because women, he had many, many girlfriends and um, very interesting women in his family and very interesting wife. So the things that the biographers couldn't or wouldn't include or had doubted or denigrated or put into a footnote, I could get all of those things and paint really quite a different portrait of Orwell and the marriage and the creation of his work, but also show the ways in which women are and the work of women are disappeared in order, in this particular case, to make a man appear decent and to owe nothing to the intellect or work uh, or patronage or intelligence of the women he relied on, or, and on, conversely, to disappear what he did to women, uh, which was also kind of shocking. So to get a picture of a decent genius who does his work alone, you have to get rid of a lot of women. And I was interested, very interested, <laughs> very interested in the mechanisms of that because I think even in my very white, very privileged, um, now post-menopausal state, I think that these methods are still at work today when I look at, you know, just not just my own tiny life, but the statistics. So in Australia today, a woman will earn on average a million dollars less than the equivalent man. We have this appalling gender wage gap. Uh, we, the UN has done a lot of work about the unpaid, a lot of work about the unpaid work of women and estimated that if it had to be paid for, it would cost $10.9 trillion a year, US. So this work is both keeping families, societies, nations, economies going. It's absolutely essential, uh, invaluable, and can't even be paid for. So I was just, I wanted to have this non-fiction narrative that did all those things and essentially said, things in the rear view mirror are closer than they appear. And then I had Eileen's letters. So then I did write these fictional scenes which occur so that this is a chronological book that takes you through the marriage. And so do the letters. 
So each uh, letter that she's writing to Nora, her best friend, I know where she was. I know what she's not telling Nora, you know, that Orwell is off with another woman, that she knows, that he know he knows that she knows. He, he wants her to know that that's what he's doing or that she's ill or that they're about to go to the Spanish Or, or that he wants her permission to do it. Yes, there's all that outrageous stuff in there. So the letters both in these fictional parts which are indented, you know immediately if you're dealing with non-fiction narrative or fiction narrative, and then she writes these letters which are then in italics. So um, it's not, it's not, that's a very long answer, but it's not as complicated as it sounds. It just works in these two levels of reality. I want her to live again and to be really, really vivid, and the way to do that is in fiction, but I also want to show how she has been disappeared and how, and investigate why uh, that struck such a chord with me. I think it was because what I discovered was Orwell was writing from an underdog position, but then I discovered he had an underdog like me. Now, now that, that was a fabulous answer, but it was just a little bit incomplete because there, <coughs> there's also Anna Funder in the, in the book as well, and there's a fabulous um, exchange you have with your 16-year-old daughter early on in the book, which kind of gives an explanation of why you're included in the book in some way. Yes, yes. Um, quite early on in the book, um, I just described... I mean, the only things... There's the same in Stasiland. The only scenes that have me in them are there for a very strategic reason that mostly doesn't have a lot to do with me. But... Uh, and I asked my, I, had to, I, I write a tiny bit about my, well, I should say actually, it's quite hard to write about a marriage if you want to stay in it. <laughs> <laughs> and it took me a lot, a lot of thinking about this. Uh, I was thinking about this because... We're what, not recording this conversation. I, so. <laughs> you are, you are, I know you are. No, but what, one of my... Um, one of my overseas publishers kept saying, we want more of you in this book, we want more of you in this book. And I kind of walked around for days thinking, I don't really think I can do that. You know, I don't think I can sustain those two things. Most people who write about a marriage write about it, you know, when it's over. Um, so my husband now has taken to saying things like, well, uh, you couldn't have written this book without me. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, of course, entirely true. Um, very, very true. Uh, yeah. Um, at the beginning, when I was writing this, I had a, a studio at the back of my house. Um, well, what I wanted to say with that, rat, like, slightly rambling roundabout thing is everything that I've written about my family in this book is um, because I... Um, I've, I've asked them permission, for one thing. Uh, but it's also that I was delving in a, into Orwell's private life and I felt pretty queasy about that at the beginning. You know, I was finding out things like after they were married, Eileen said to um, an ex-lover of Orwell's, an older woman called Mabel Fiertz, uh, I think he's had too much sex before marriage. 
which really puzzles some of the biographers and they try to interpret it. It is very puzzling and say, you know, maybe he was jaded and unresponsive or maybe he was too rough or whatever. He'd had a lot of sexual experience in brothels in Burma as a young man when he worked there and in brothels in Paris and with girlfriends and so on. Um, And then I came across this um, very disturbing kind of almost semi-confession or cri de coeur of some sort in Orwell's last literary notebook that he was writing when he was very, very ill with TB um, and he died um, in the months after this. This is after the marriage was over and he wrote... The thing he wrote in the third person, as if to sort of distance himself from from sentiments that were hard to own, I think. And he wrote, uh, "The thing that they don't tell you about women is about their uh, general untidiness and filthiness, and their terrible devouring sexuality." And he said, in any marriage he thinks of more than a year's standing, it's always the woman who wants it more and more and always the man who's trying to get out of it uh, or do it with other women, conscious all the while that his wife despises him for his lack of virility. So that was really disturbing, kind of paranoid, you know, the thing that they, whoever they is, don't tell you and this awful stuff about women's filthiness and devouring sexuality. And I thought, well, how was that for her? You know, probably too much gleaning and not enough or not good enough sex, you know. But then I had this moment where I just thought, I feel really queasy about hopping into their private life, you know, to look at that. I'd hate someone to do that to me. But the more I thought about that, walking around my house drinking coffee in my pyjamas for like a week, the more I thought about that, I just thought, actually what's happening here is that it's in his privacy, it's protecting his privacy, but that's where she lived. If I'm going to get her out of there, I have to go in there. I have to find out what happened. And it seemed to me then that even the concept of privacy is gendered. You know, a man's privacy is where we don't go because that's where he can treat women in ways that are not decent, sometimes not legal, and that if he did outside the house or to anyone else other than a woman uh, would um, disrupt his sense of himself as a decent human being. So these are things that we know from, you know, discussions of domestic violence today and so on. So that was how I thought about, well, I'm actually going to go in there and see what I can find out about their life. But part of my method, I suppose, is to then have a look at my own life as well and uh, this scene that you're talking about occurs when I'm grappling with these issues and it's 2017 when I started writing. So it's the beginning of Me Too and Me Too is really ratcheting up and my daughter is 16 so she's coming into adulthood at this moment of where you know sexual predators and creeps are being revealed to be everywhere, you know, in churches and schools and Parliament House and the White House and Hollywood. And it's just like this massive invisible substrate of things that I and women my age all knew 
and had experienced, but were never spoken. So it was sort of like the outing of ghouls. But, you know, as parents, we, we spend our time, I spend my time kind of trying to protect our children from the ghouls and the predators and the horrors of the world. And yet then every night on television there was all of this stuff. I came in one morning from working and my 16-year-old asked me, what are you working on, Mum? And she wasn't usually very interested in what I was doing, so I was um, kind of pleased. And I said, I'm, I'm working on a story about a marriage, the Orwells, and it's hard. And I wouldn't usually have kind of confessed that sort of difficulty to her as well. And she said, why is it hard? And I said, well, it's hard, you know, if you find out that the man was, and she just says, an asshole." <laughs> I was like, yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, and, um, and then she says, uh, and I said, yeah, and then she kind of looks at me and she's taking the opportunity to like open up a peanut butter jar, stick a knife into it, lick the knife of the peanut butter into it, because she knows she's my full attention, I'm not going to say anything. And um, I said, you know, Orwell was interested in this question too of an artist making great work and being a terrible human being. Um, he was interested in it about Dali whose work he found extraordinary, but he said he's a disgusting human being. Interested in it about Dickens. Uh, Dali is disgusting because he tried to strangle his wife. Dickens is disgusting because of the way he treated his wife. Shakespeare gave, um, bequeathed his second best bed very famously to his wife. And, you know, we've had 400 years of agony about what that means about Shakespeare. Very inconclusive. So I was talking about this with, with her. Um, and uh, she says to me, well, Orwell must have known at some level that he was an asshole, or he wouldn't have been interested in this question. And I said, yeah, you're probably right. And then she did, has a lick of the knife and she says, so why are you interested in this question, Mum? <laughs> and I said, oh, maybe I'm an asshole. <laughs> it was a really scary moment because she could have answered anything and she just shrugged and said, isn't everybody? <laughs> I think I just went back to my studio kind of proud at the, the insight that she had into Orwell, me, the world, everything else, and kind of heartbroken because of the effort, I suppose, that we all put into protecting our children from this world of ghouls. No. That was a really good answer. <laughs> so we could talk a little bit just about Orwell himself because I think one of the um, one of the impressions that we have from the 21st century looking back at him is that he was an extraordinarily successful writer who was uh, universally acknowledged and everything. And this is incredibly far from the truth. Yes. He was, so when Eileen met him, she'd never heard of him and neither had any of her friends. They met at a party in Hampstead in the at the beginning of 1935. She went to this party with a friend, Lydia, who was Russian, and uh, she was a classmate. So Eileen graduated in literature from Oxford, and then she worked in a number of different jobs. Um, she wrote some feature journalism. 
She was a reader for Dame Cadbury of the chocolate-making family, a sort of companion. She'd worked with um, an Archbishop's Prevention and Rescue Committee, which was some sort of social work. One of the biographers thinks among prostitutes or something. She'd worked in secretarial offices where one of the bosses in the office was a very bullying woman and Eileen had um, rallied all the other staff and arranged a, a walkout in revolt at this woman. So Eileen had a sense of justice and um, and was really courageous. Um, then she marries Orwell. When they turn up at this party, Lydia says... Uh, she, they walked in and there was this moth-eaten and unhealthy-looking man <laughs> standing at the mantelpiece. Orwell basically fell in love with Eileen at first sight. She was enormously attractive and she was a fabulous listener and very funny and very clever. He proposed to her shortly after and when she told Lydia, Lydia said oh my God, what are you going to do? She was absolutely horrified. And Eileen said, I don't know. I said to myself, if I'm, not, if I'm not married before I'm 30, I'll just accept the first offer that happens. So maybe that's what I'll do. And I think she was really teasing Lydia, who was very serious. And she was also sort of aware that she's putting Orwell at arm's length. But no, he was moth-eaten and poor and publishing in small magazines. Um, he, when they got married, he'd just been up to Wigan and they, he, he was writing The Road to Wigan Pier, which is a really wonderful examination of the lives of the very poor coal miners in the northern town of Wigan. Um, his publishers um, and friends thought that, remarkably, after they were married, his writing improved and they could find no reason for it, but it was a remarkable improvement in clarity and style. Uh, so shortly after that, they, they go to Spain after the wedding, and um, that's a whole other story. Well, I don't know if you want to go there. I was actually going to be my next question, really, because <clears throat> one of the great stories you tell in the book is about what happened in Spain there, because we never hear that Eileen was in Spain in any of the any of the stories we hear about her, and the the um, the uh, homage to Catalonia is a a book about Orwell's experiences there, but but her experience both there and in London during the Second World War are, are, are remarkable. I know, I know. I think that's why I used to be very embarrassed that this book used to be. I mean, I talk as if it's a long time ago. Until a few months ago, I was embarrassed that this book had taken me or was taking me so long. Uh, but now I can kind of see why. Now I can put the, um, the birth pangs of it behind me and kind of see why. Orwell, uh, the first letter, that's the murder or separation letter, um, shortly after that, oh, I should say that letter also contains other bits of astonishing foresight on Eileen's part, if I'll just mention before we get to Spain. So she's writing this as Orwell's going to Spain and she's not telling Nora that Orwell's going off to Spain to fight. And I think that's because Nora would have thought, my God, you're just married and he's about to disappear on you. Who is this person? 
and might have descended on Eileen to sort of rescue her in a way she didn't want to be rescued. But Eileen writes in the murder or separation letter, um, on the whole, the family of fun, and uh, they seem to be on my side against George, actually. Uh, on the wedding day, the mother, Ida, took me aside and said, I'd be a brave girl if I knew what I was in for. And the sister said, well, obviously she doesn't know what she's in for or she wouldn't be here. <laughs> and then uh, and then Eileen says, um, but what they haven't understood yet is that I am very like or, um, George in temperament, which is an asset once one has accepted the fact. So he's very, very wry. And the end of that letter then has another kind of worrying note where she says, I have wanted to come and see you. Nora lives in Bristol and they're in Wellington. Uh, but every time I go, when George doesn't know that I'm going, he gets something when I'm gone, if he has notice of the fact. And if he doesn't have notice of the fact, he gets something so that I can't leave. He had very bad lungs, but I think she didn't. She's saying there that she understands that she's being controlled um, but she's also making light of it at the same time. And there's a lot of that in her tone and in her letters. And it seemed to me when I was looking at them that self-deprecation is a virtue, feminine virtue in patriarchy, but eventually it realises itself and it looks like a crime. Anyway, before we get to the criminal part, we're going to Spain. And so Orwell goes off to Spain to fight the fascists, Franco's fascists in 1936. And you can read, as I have, Homage to Catalonia, a book I've loved since my teens, a couple of times, as I have too, and not realise that Orwell was not in Spain alone. It's this fabulous account of him being an infantryman off in a trench in the hills of Aragon, um, bored out of his mind, literally putting his head up above the parapet, trying to find a bullet to hit him. He's so, so bored. Um, he has, he says, you know, he has, like all of them, um, lice crawling down his inseam and all over his testicles and the food is terrible and the water is so bad he has to wash in wine, which is unusual. But it's this very visceral, wonderful account of fighting um, in the Spanish Civil War. But really, you can read that book, as I say, and not understand that Eileen was there almost the whole time that he was there. And not only that, she had a political job at the political headquarters of the Inter International Labour Party, which was affiliated with the POOM, for whom Orwell was fighting off in the trenches. She was writing the propaganda for radio and print um, with her boss, uh, Charles Orr, an American economist. So they were bringing, getting the news from the front and turning it into propaganda about, you know, victories that they weren't really having or whatever it was. She was dealing with all of the supply to the men in the trenches and their communications from the trenches back home to the UK. She had her sister-in-law, Gwen, her brother's wife, who was a doctor, drive a, their car from London full of medicine for the men over. She lent the head of this organisation, John McNair, quite a lot of money of her own because he had none. So she was intimately involved and at the epicentre of this political party. 
The, the office she worked in was riddled with Stalinist spies. Stalin was having his purges, obviously, in 36 in Russia. And it looked to the outside world and actually to the left-wing fighters in Spain as if Stalin was supplying them with munitions and men. But actually, he was preparing to completely rout that leftist revolution, um, which he did in May 37, with street battles. So the Stalin, Stalinist forces basically took over the Spanish police and there were mass arrests, killings, incarcerations and so on, because Stalin didn't want a left-wing revolution in Europe that he didn't control. And as we know, Spain was then under fascist military dictatorship till the 1970s. Can, can, I, can I just... I just want to I, talk about the route, actually. Yeah, yeah it just, it's, it's an interesting kind of historical thing there because I, I knew quite a lot about the Spanish Civil War, but I hadn't really quite understood how um, implicated in the, in, the, in the failure of the left-wing revolution in Spain <coughs> Stalin was... Stalin's involvement was. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, he, he absolutely was, so that there were Stalinist forces who were there. Um, who were actually killing other people who were yes, fighting alongside them. Yes, so killing members of the PUM, the party that Orwell was fighting with, um, and others. Any non-Stalinist leftists were called uh, Trotskyists, enemies of the people, and uh, rounded up, many killed and imprisoned and so on. At the, at, this is happening when towards the end of the time that George and Eileen are in Spain, she, she's living in the Hotel Continental and about 100 yards down the street on the Ramblas, that beautiful boulevard in Barcelona, is the, her office, the headquarters of this, um, the ILP. And in um, May, June, actually during the 3rd of May, uh, street battles break out right near the hotel, right near her office. Um, it's, gun, it's machine gun fire and bombs. And Orwell is walking past on the street and he hears this and he makes the mistake of running away from the action down towards the port where the Poom has another building that it controls. And he goes there looking for a weapon and wanting to be involved in the fight that he's just actually run away from. The Poom is impoverished and has hardly any weapons, but he stays there thinking he might get an order to fight in some way in these street battles. Um, he, uh, he stays there all day, nothing happens. In the evening of that day, he, he writes in Amish Carolina, so I went out to dinner with a friend uh, to his hotel. So he goes out to dinner with a friend. And then he gets back uh, and tries to tell... He says, I tried to telephone my wife. During these battles, um, the telephone exchange had gone down, but then it was working again. So he rings, he says, I tried to make contact with my wife. Um, I rang the hotel. I couldn't reach my wife, but I did manage to reach John McNair, who's the head of the party, who told me um, that everything was all right and nobody had been injured. And then the narrative continues. So you read that in Homage to Catalonia on a page, and you think, well, he was thinking about his wife and trying to reach her, um, and then the battle goes on, and you hear about it from his point of view. What was 
it took me a long time to do this and it felt like kind of reverse engineering a cobweb in the text under the passive tense. So what's actually, I went to the sources and I found other sources. Eileen's boss, um, Charles Orr, who was doing the propaganda, for instance, wrote of her, compared to all the grifters and revolutionaries and spies and hangers-on who uh, came through our office, Eileen stood out as a superior person. Not one biographer uses that. So I was finding these things. So you read this page in Homage to Catalonia about trying to ring my wife. And then with all of these scraps of information that I knew, I could reverse engineer that page. And what's actually going on is Orwell is, is ringing the room at the Continental where Eileen is, and she's not there. And then he rings her office, obviously, because that's where he finds her boss. But he can't say that he then rings her office because he can't say that she has a job. And she, he can't say that she has a political job at the head office of the party that she's working for. And when he reports that McNair says, everything's all right, nobody had been hurt, what he means is, Eileen hadn't been shot. Nobody is Eileen. So these are the very interesting and complex ways in which a story is told, leaving out the woman at the centre of it, at the epicentre of it. Um, because she wasn't just sitting in her office. She was guarding <clears throat> the passports of all the people in the party that she had. She had control of all this information that if Stalin's forces got hold of would have led to all of their deaths and she was guarding them with their life. I know, I know. Yes, I know, it's a remarkable story. Orwell does tell one anecdote of exactly that. So she, he's sending back from the front scraps of uh, notes about what's going on. His, the other soldiers used to call him that scribbler because he was very diligently taking notes, leaning in. I've been, I went on this extraordinary trip with the son that Eileen and Orwell adopted in 1944 and the son of Orwell's commander uh, there. They, these men sort of grew up together, just as history has it. And they run the Orwell Society and I went with them on a tour of these very dugouts and trenches that Orwell had been in and also that Eileen had visited at the front at one point and come under fire. That doesn't appear in homage to Catalonia. You won't know about that either. But yes, at the end when these Stalinist routes are happening, she has typed up all of these notes that he's been sending on scraps of paper into the manuscript of what will become homage to Catalonia. And she is aware, she has a very good kind of political antenna and she's aware that the raids are coming and the imprisonments are coming and she puts that into safe hands, a man who's going underground, her boss actually, uh, who's sort of disappearing. And she stays in the hotel under risk of arrest every night waiting for Orwell to get back from the front because she thinks that if he walks in, he'll be arrested straight away. So she's kind of trying to save him. But she puts their passports and checkbooks under the mattress of the room that she's in. And sure enough, at dawn one day, and Orwell describes this from her description, obviously, um, six policemen under Stalinist control come in and spend two hours in this hotel room 
with her sitting in her nightie in the bed on top of the passports and checkbooks. They open the toilet system, they go through all their clothes, they go through their drawers, they pat down the curtains, they do everything. It's a big display to terrorise her, really. Uh, and somehow or other, she stays calm enough not to ruffle them and for this to go on kind of peacefully. And they leave. Orwell tells this story, and for him, that story is a demonstration uh, that even when under Stalinist control, these men were Spaniards, and Spaniards are too decent to turf a woman out of bed. That's the point of that for him. So he really can't see her or won't put her into the book. At the end of working on this section of the book, which is about 80 pages of it, uh, I got, um, I pulled up Orwell's Out of Copyright, so you can pull up on gutenberg.com the full text of his works, including Homage to Catalonia. And I, I put in um, my wife as a search term, and it comes up, 37 times. And then I realised that not once is Eileen named. And if you don't name someone, no character can come alive or have any agency or be remembered. So he, he mentions her when he can't get away with the story without mentioning her, uh, but she doesn't exist in that book. The biographers, I have to say, say things like, Eileen who wasn't political at all, went to Spain to be nearer to her husband, uh, simply to be nearer to her husband, and to procure for him in Barcelona uh, chocolate, margarine and cigars when she could and send them to the front. Full stop. <laughs> so that's not what went on. I did wonder, I have to say, when they were back in the UK and she was typing this manuscript which she informed but in which she doesn't appear, how that felt. So I have a scene of her doing that. Now, I'm kind of aware of the time, and I, I know that people in the audience will have some questions for you. I've got, I'm kind of skipping past about 50 of my own here that, that your stories have brought up, but uh, <clears throat> maybe to finish my part of, the, of this, I, I'd like to kind of return to that first question I asked you, which, and, uh, which was that, you know, I wonder if you could give us your views on cancellation because um, I know that you've said that the last thing he wanted from this book was that Oral's reputation should be in any way destroyed, but you do, as I understand it, have lots of thoughts about the demands that artists, writers, painters, musicians make on their families and their partners. Oh, this is a big and endlessly fascinating question. Um, I am not in favour of uh, banning books or cancelling ideas or uh, people, whatever that might mean. I'm too close a student of 20th century tyranny to find that remotely acceptable. Um, and I think the ideas behind that are kind of tyrannical in a way, and from that place no art comes. Art is about, uh, you know, we want our artists to show us things that are otherwise invisible in some way that is beautiful or delightful or acceptable. If you look at, for instance, 1984, which is a book written after their relationship was over, um, it is sadistic, 
misogynistic, violent, paranoid, and probably 10,000 words too long. And I think if Eileen were around, she would have um, ameliorated those things. But I think to expect uh, the person who created that not to have seen and felt those things at a very deep level in order to be interested in enough, or as my daughter said of me, asshole enough to represent them is a, a very simplified way of thinking. It is, not, um, it is not possible for the artist who wrote that not to have seen or been those things. One of the, and this applies of course to myself as well, we write out of our flaws, out of things we don't understand, out of our darknesses, and we do it so that the art that ends up between covers or on a television screen or Guernica, speaking of the Spanish Civil War, on a, on a wall in a frame, those are acceptable, exciting, delightful, disturbing works of art. They don't come from a place or a person that is uh, not very complex and possibly dark in those ways. And so that's why I think that you can't go around uh, expecting people to be you know, as good as their works. This was put best to me by Richard Ford, the novelist. When I was living in, in New York, I went to hear him speak at the 92nd Street Y in this wonderful event with Laurie Moore. And I remember him saying that he thought that people were always disappointed when they met him. And he thought that that was because he put his best self into his work. And he said, and I... I'm not my best work. So that's such a good thing to end with as you're about to meet me, who, who, who am not my best work. <laughs> but I do think that it is um, uh, way too simplistic to want um, our artists to somehow be um, blameless superheroes with capes who are... I'm not complex and not looking into dark things. That's precisely that uh, simplified um, and distilled and essential and sometimes beautiful look at hard things that we want from them. I would just say one, one other thing. If I look at the biographies, they... They're all terrific, you can read them with great pleasure, but they seem to me to give us a partial picture of the man in both senses of the word. Incomplete and overly fond. And so this is a book that is can sit alongside them as a corrective. I started in the end, I thought the biographies were fictions of omission. And I have written here a fiction of inclusion. It, it, it's always such a pleasure to have a conversation with you, Anna. You're, you're just delightful. Now, I'm sure there's going to be some questions from the audience. I'd just ask you, please, to wait for Tony to come to you with the microphone so that we can get them on the recording. I've got a question straight here. I can see two immediately, OK? We have, 
I'm just looking at the clock up there. My clock here has died. Um, we've got about 12 minutes or so to go, so we can take a few questions. Hello. Um, my name is Lara. I am a huge fan of yours. It's such a pleasure to be in the same room as you. And I've been reading you since I was a teenager, so it's wonderful. Um, with that in mind, I have a bit of a cheeky question. <laughs> um, you talked just then at length about cancellation and knowing what our culture and society is at the moment in those terms. Could this book realistically get Orwell cancelled? And if it did, how do you feel about that? Um, I don't think anything or anyone could cancel Orwell. I think um, he's, uh, so the man is long dead and um, possibly rolling in his grave right now, listening to us here, but uh, the work is important and um, delightful and powerful and will live on. Um, I think that it's, uh, I, I, I just don't, I don't, go there. I don't think that's a productive place to be. You know, one of Orwell's most fundamental insights came from his time when he was a young policeman in Burma. And he wrote about this in the character of John Florey in Burmese Days, the novel he wrote after that period. And he, Florey, the character, describes these um, men, these white men of empire, sitting around in their clubs in Myanmar, then Burma, drinking whiskey, thinking of, thinking of themselves as perfectly upright, decent fellows, whilst they were administering this rapacious and hideous colonial regime, and also saying unbelievably awful things about the local people who lived there, purely on the basis of race, really. And then when I read 1984, you can see this idea coming to absolute fruition in the notion of doublethink, where uh, Orwell says doublethink is hold the power to hold two contradictory things in your mind at the same time. And one of them is conscious, and one of them has to remain below the level of consciousness, because if it were conscious as well, it would give rise to, he says, a feeling of guilt. So those men can imagine themselves to be decent fellows whilst actually doing all of this awful, awful stuff because they do not grant the Burmese their full humanity. But this is an insight that Orwell can see there, but he can never apply that to gender relations because he has too much to lose because he has a woman's services for life in Eileen. And patriarchy allows him to think of himself as a decent man whilst at the same time exploiting, mistreating, ignoring uh, and writing out of history the women who made him, helped him or suffered from him. So in that demonstration of how useful his ideas are to turn them on his life, I think there is an argument against cancelling any of them. Um, and jump just here. Hi, Anna. Um, yeah. Annie put a hand up for me. Thank you so much. I've been a huge fan for a long time. I've taught your novel in Year 12 English and I've taught 1984 as well. So it's, I haven't read Wifedom yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. Um, 
Is it possible, you sort of alluded to it a lot there, how much of Orwell's novels did his wife write? (laughs) Um, Well, she wrote what she called... So there was this remarkable and sudden improvement in his work um, after the marriage. I don't really want to take anything away from him. He worked unbelievably hard and diligently... But he hadn't been to university and she had this exquisite education in literature, studying under Tolkien, Stephen Spender was a contemporary. She had written before she met him a poem called End of the Century, 1984, about a dystopian future of telepathy and mind control. Um, I'm not, I'm, I'm, you know, these the people influence one another, um, but it's good when it's exciting when the influences are visible. During the war, Animal Farm was written in a three-month period in 1943-4 in the winter. Eileen had been supporting the two of them by working at the Department of Censorship in the Ministry of Information in London for two years to support them financially. That building is Senate House in London and he took that as his model for the Ministry of Truth in 1984. So I don't know exactly what she was doing up there. It was probably described as secretarial, but it almost certainly involved in some way deleting the news, like Winston does, because that's what had to happen during the war. After she hated that job, she left it and went and worked at the Ministry of Food, which she really loved. Orwell then said... He wanted to write an essay critical of Stalin. For obvious reasons, he was freaked out by Stalin basically all his life. He couldn't get... His whole life he was scared that some Stalinist agent was going to come and find him in any corner of the earth that he was in. I think that was highly unlikely. But anyway, he wanted to write an essay critical of Stalin and Eileen, who had real political nous, said, right now... Uh, We are being bombed to smithereens by Hitler every night and Stalin is on our side helping us win this war. No one here is going to publish an essay critical of Stalin. So, what did they do instead? The family story is that she convinced him to write a novel. And she had been thinking when they were living in this hovel in the country, um, they had goats they had, Orwell was obsessed with goats. They had two goats and a whole bunch of chickens and she called the goat, named the goats after Orwell's aunt, Nellie, and after an ex-girlfriend, Mabel. <laughs> and she'd given all the chickens names and she wanted to perhaps write a story uh, with character, farm animal characters and so on way back then. So Animal Farm is written, he writes it during the day and at night she comes home and they get into bed because they can't afford to heat the flat and work on it together every night. And we know this in detail because every morning she went to work at the Ministry of Food. One of her colleagues is, uh, was the novelist Lettuce Cooper and she has written about how Eileen used to regale them with the latest instalment of Animal Farm every morning and Eileen thought it was a winner and really loved it and everybody else thought that they really loved it at work as well. And obviously she's rehearsing things with her colleagues and so on. She takes them back. Animal Farm is a complete outlier in all of Orwell's works. It doesn't have his usual uh, everyman, underdog, stand-in Orwell figure like Winston or John Florey. Um, 
It has an ensemble cast of characters. It has all of whom are well-drawn, including the women, which doesn't happen in any of others, his other work. It has a perfect fable structure, a perfect political structure. But, and it has her whimsy and humour all over it. It's really, really clear. He thought it was his best work. Uh, other people agree. But again, his best friend, Richard Rees, and his publisher, Fred Warburg, both of whom knew and really loved Eileen, knew her well, had been at their house many, many times, knew her voice. Frederick Warburg said, for instance, after it came out, I simply couldn't understand it. The writer of rather grey novels had suddenly taken wings and become a poet. So that was also, that took a little unravelling. That's, that's the story behind Animal Farm. So, listen, I've only got time for one more question. There's a hand close to you there, Tony. So, oh, you've got somebody there? Right, last question for the night. Sorry. Hello. Um, Anna, I've loved your book. I've, I've got it. I've got all these markers in it. It's amazing. And um, all that I am was amazing. Um, you have to read it, everyone. There's more than what was presented tonight. You, it's just touched the surface and you will really get the story. And I was curious that both for both authors tonight, Stephen said, oh, but you haven't... Um, oh, what was the word? Um, sorry. You didn't say cancel, but you said... It's not, a ta it's not an attack on Cezanne, is it? It's not an attack on George Orwell, is it? But why not? Why are we afraid of? <laughs> We're trying to protect someone... They don't need protecting anymore. Um, it reminds me of the movie Promising Young Woman. And so all the modern stories are coming out and we must expose them. And then we have to make our own decisions. So it's, you don't have to say um, you don't want to cancel them. But yeah, I agree with the cancelling. So what's your thoughts on that? You didn't want... Because what you've said tonight is in the book, but any more you can say on that. You, you didn't... You did say you didn't want to cancel him, but you didn't want... What was that word again? Sorry. You didn't want to attack him, but... Can we? Well, I... Um, thank you for that. For that. Um, that's a very kind of fulsome um, question and comment. I think they're really important issues. I'm not... I just don't see this as a sort of attack-cancelling situation. I think, just to be totally... It's possible that for, for instance, a man who really, really loves Orwell, to feel that Orwell is being attacked in this book, I would understand that. But what's actually going on is he is being revealed so I'm not attacking him. I am just saying, okay, or, and I'm not attacking the biographers either. I'm saying, right, in the biographies we learn mainly about his family through the male line, all these Scots, Blairs. But actually, the much more interesting inheritance, which you will not understand from reading the biographies, is that his mother and aunt were feminists, Fabians, left-wingers, suffragettes, and so on. So I'm not attacking anybody when I say that. I'm just saying, look what was left out, and I wonder why. 
because it's so systematic. And then I'm saying this is, on the other hand, so he, he gains a lot. For someone who grows up to write from an underdog left-wing position, to have a feminist suffragette mother and aunt, his aunt was arrested with the Pankhursts, his aunt ran a literary salon, these are literary, politically engaged women, that would be, you would think, perhaps, the more relevant inheritance than his rather doltish uh, empire civil servant father, but no. And what, and then, so that's on the one hand. On the other hand is what he did to women, Eileen and the many, 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 many other women uh, in his life. That's a complicated story. It's not an attack, it's what happened. And it's how he lived. And to imagine that telling a story from a woman's point of view is an attack on a man is a very defensive position. And uh, maybe I can understand why they might feel defensive, but the answer to that is not to stop the truth coming out. It's not to silence or eliminate or invisibilise the women, the woman's point of view, the wife, the mother, and all the rest of us. And that's the mechanism I'm trying to unpack. A, a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much, Anna. Now, My pleasure. If, if I might just ask for a moment's indulgence from the audience, I'd like to thank a few people. <clears throat> I'd like to extend my thanks to Lee and to Karen, who are running Rosetta Books. We're always delighted to be able to work with them and immensely grateful for their continued support and book selling. Both Angela and Anna's books are for sale at the back of the hall. They'll be signing copies for you there in a moment. Please, just a request, please don't waylay them on the way there. They need to get to the table to sign books. <clears throat> I'd like to thank Howie for sound and lights and recording. We'll get the podcast of this up later. Um, these events couldn't operate without a lot of help from volunteers who put out the chairs and clean up afterwards, who take tickets to the door. We're immensely grateful to you all, Kim, Carolyn, Di, Dom, and Peter, who also takes the photographs, to Millennium Community Centre, who run the bar, to the Sunshine Coast Council for their support through cre the Creative Industries Investment Programme. The funds come jointly through Arts Coast and the Art and Heritage Levy and Radif in the partnership with the Queensland Government. Our next scheduled event will be with David Ma. That's on, going to be on Tuesday, October the 24th. Uh, 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 this was booked this morning, so I have very little more information about it, except that you will receive emails about it in due course. David has written a book called Killing for Country, where he explores the uh, role of the native police in the settlement of Queensland. <coughs> This has a very personal note for him because it turns out his forebears were members of the native police. Um, so I'm looking forward very much to speaking to him. Uh, you can, of course, listen to our podcasts on, uh, on Apple Podcasts or just through our websites. There's about 60 up on the site these days. One of the questions uh, Tony and I often get asked is how we get such wonderful authors to Mulaney, um, as such as we've had tonight. And the answer comes in a couple of parts. The first part would be to say, because of you. And it's because we have a, a very loyal audience and an audience that keeps turning out, and it's not always you, but it's people like you who come to support these events. This makes publishers think that we're worthwhile to put on their, on their journeys with their authors, and we thank very much, extend our thanks very much to Penguin Random House on this occasion for, for bringing Anda, for UQP for bringing Angela. The, the other um, 
answer to that question is that, uh, and I've forgotten what the other answer is. I've got to... <laughs> I, 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 I have one. I have one. It's because we like being in conversation with you. And we like being here. We like Malaney. <laughs> Yeah, you're very, you're very kind. Thank you. So, look, just to finish off, please put your hands together for Anna and, and for Angela. <laughs>